You're listening to the Brooklyn USA podcast, an occasional audio love letter from Brooklyn to the world. Each episode of our show jams itself into a different corner of life in Brooklyn and delivers stories, sounds, and scenery from the people and places that make it home. And until we get unstuck, we'll be stalled at the intersection of politics and pestilence on a corner we've been calling 1920. Today, it's April 24th, and tomorrow can't come soon enough. In the months immediately following the election of the current president, it occurred to me that his particular way of doing things most closely mirrored a DDoS attack. You've probably seen one before, or not been able to log on to Netflix or eBay or stream songs on Spotify because a person or persons had intentionally flooded the site with meaningless traffic to overload its processing capacity and render it inoperable. It's systematic destruction aimed at total shutdown, done for fun or to send a message, or to mask an ulterior motive in a deluge of chaotic and confusing distraction. And by the very first lie about how many people attended his inauguration, all the way through to this week's suggestion that it would be interesting for scientists to check if injecting household disinfectants into the human body held the cure for a disease that's now killed over 50,000 people in the nation he leads, I felt flooded to near capacity this week by the president's traffic and wondered, as always, what motive it belies. We've heard from a lot of people in the past few weeks, some working, essentially and still, on jobs that risk their lives to keep the city moving, and some working, tirelessly, to hold on to what they can of the businesses they've been forced to close and to help the employees they've been forced to let go. And with the current commotion over reopening salons and liberating bowling alleys, gaining traction from the White House to the streets, it's hard not to wonder again what's really going on. It stopped making sense that opening a country's worth of shops to a threat that can't yet be contained and is still relatively unknown would be good for anything. Unless it's good, for the economy, that businesses and workers who decide to heed the call of safety over the din of counterfeit protest won't be eligible for aid if they can choose to work instead. But this week, we're overwhelmed and almost inoperable, and having trouble figuring anything out at all. First, we fast, reflect, and relearn an old tradition. Then we go to the source, and the source's source, and so on. Next, we look out a window to the other side of the world. Then, we check our messages, and finally, we check the weather. But for now, we quit talking and leave our mind behind. You're always at your best when you're in Brooklyn, USA. The sickness is the cure is a unifying theme that explains the last two months of my life. I and my family of five were extremely sick with coronavirus for a few weeks. I had a 103 fever and it's the sickest I've ever been. I remember that Tuesday I was shaking in my bed, profusely sweating, and my family had to come in and take care of me. And 
All of us got really sick. My grandma was in the hospital on a ventilator for, I think, eight days, and she made it. It definitely changed our life because it cured us of this idea of control. And the idea of the sickness is the cure is that coronavirus brought us close to mortality, both personally, within our family, with extended friends, people in our networks. And ever since then, I've never felt more alive. Ever since my last day of fever, cough, diarrhea, a little shortness of breath, I've tried to live every moment to the fullest. And it's, it's funny because I, I give myself this experiment where I tell myself, if I had only 24 hours to live right now, and I knew when my ending would be, how would I live? Living that way has been the most liberating feeling. And I have coronavirus to thank for that. But coping with it hasn't been easy. It's a collective trauma that we are all undergoing right now. People are familiar with PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. I call this CTSD, Continuous Traumatic Stress Disorder. And there are certain communities that are undergoing this, specifically those that are undocumented, uninsured, poor, primarily black and brown. And those communities need collective therapy. Because we're living in a time now where the sickness is the cure and coronavirus is curing our perception of how truly distorted the structural inequities of our society are, where we see how people at the bottom are dying and people at the top are not. And we knew that before this pandemic, but we now really know it and we're now really seeing it. As someone who is a physician and I work in health tech, I'm a community organizer and I'm politically active, I've realized that my coping with my own sickness and my own sense of wanting to give back is service. Is how do I serve my community? How do I serve those who have a lot less? If that's medicine, food, shelter, money, especially with Ramadan coming up, the idea of spiritual purification. It's also gotten me thinking about purification of our wallets, purification of our actions, purification of our thoughts. 
um, I'm part of this spiritual Muslim community where having a sense of peace and calm and serenity has been deeply grounding in the beautiful chaos that's surrounding all of this pandemic. The mosque that I was born and raised in is during Ramadan, during iftar time, all of us logging on to a Zoom call and making sure we see each other and see our plates during iftar. And it's a beautiful reminder that even though the mosques are closed, our hearts are still open for us to be spiritually connected, even though we're seeing all of us on a computer screen. Not letting the machines get in the way of the connections between our hearts. I think this Ramadan is really going to be about looking inwards and understanding it's not about the fancy iftar parties or the lectures in person or the long nights in Tarawih. Uh, it's actually bringing us back to to the beginning of nights spent alone. Allahu Akbar, Allahu Akbar. Community matters a great deal to those who have it during Ramadan. But there are those who don't have it. And I've wondered what this experience in a pandemic would be. And I fear for many people, the absence of people around them in this month will be deeply troubling. Because to be honest, none of us have experienced this month in a pandemic. But does it really matter? Does it matter if it's sunny outside or it's rainy outside? Does it matter if people are healthy outside or sick outside? Isn't the month about ourselves at the end of the day? Isn't it isn't hasn't it always been about turning inwards, purifying from within, and seeing how you can serve and do good?
every year, hundreds of thousands of people suffer from communicable diseases, and many die unnecessarily from preventable infections. Despite the nation's tanking economy and skyrocketing rate of unemployment, warehouses, supermarkets, and teleconference companies seem to be hiring at unprecedented speed. But there's another sector gearing up to recruit hundreds of thousands of new employees. The growth is coming in the field of epidemic surveillance, disease detection, or, as it's mostly referred to these days, contact tracing. Well, you know how these things start. One guy tells another guy something, and then he tells two friends, and they tell two friends, and they tell their friends, and so on, and so on, and so on. It is like it sounds, identifying the carriers of a known disease and then locating the people they've come into contact with in an attempt to track and control the cycle of infection. It's among the steps South Korea has taken to flatten their COVID curve and was essential to the eradication of smallpox and tuberculosis and more recently to fight AIDS, cholera, and Ebola. Although the practice goes back decades, it's something that we, well, that many of us are hearing about for the first time now. How does it work? You test the person. If the person winds up positive, you then trace that person's contacts, contact tracing. Here's New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo explaining the process. Once you trace and you find more positives, then you isolate the positives. They're under quarantine. They can't go out. They can't infect anybody else. This entire operation has never been done before. Uh, So it's intimidating. You've never heard the words testing, tracing, isolate before. No one has. We've just never done this. There were a few textbooks that spoke about it. Well, we have to put together a tracing army. Yes. Okay, we put together armies before. Never a tracing army. But we can put together people, we can organize, we can train, and we can do it. An epidemic might start anywhere and reach into many states. The classic example is the 1918 influenza pandemic, which was first recognized in Boston and within a month spread throughout the entire country. But the responsibility for the prevention of communicable diseases is vested primarily in the state and local health departments. I was thrilled to hear Governor Cuomo talk yesterday about a partnership with Michael Bloomberg to ramp up a contact tracing program in New York. But he made one mistake. He said, we've never done contact tracing. That is not accurate. We asked you to come in today because um, someone that has syphilis has named you as a sexual contact, and we're worried that you may have the disease. Well, um, I've been feeling perfectly fine. My name is uh, David Harvey, and I'm the executive director of the National Coalition of STD Directors. We have, for decades, had a public health workforce that silently worked to stem infectious disease outbreaks. Disease intervention specialists, or DIS, have long been a critical part of public health, working directly with communities. Historically, DIS have worked in STD, HIV, and TB prevention. But now, increasingly, DIS support response to other infectious disease outbreaks and emergency preparedness and response. An average DIS is trained and mentored for a year, and uh, it's an essential public health workforce. These are folks that are deployed whenever there is an infectious disease outbreak. It can be TB, it's been Ebola, Zika, 
any infectious disease outbreak you can think of, usually there has been a response from the public health workforce, and at the core of it has been these highly skilled disease intervention specialists. And the skills they developed over the years, he says, are applicable today. They specialize in reaching out in confidential ways in order to break the chain of STDs. These are the same essential skills used to to deal with other infectious diseases like COVID. With his experience in marshalling this workforce, it makes sense that his organization would be central to the effort to build the COVID response army. I asked if he'd been enlisted. In short, no. We have been forcing our way in to the public discourse on this because it's insane that we're talking about doing contact tracing and not using the expertise we already have within states and cities. And this is not just New York. If you look at any state across the country, it appears that governors and health officers don't know the capabilities of their own teams that they already have in place. So our message is simple. Use your existing workforce, support them, add money to expand them, and use them to train new people coming in at the entry level of doing contact tracing work. From coast to coast, from border to border, and over the border, in cities, towns, on farms, the death toll is well over 50,000 lives each year. Who is the next patient, doctor? He isn't always the person in the waiting room. The next patient might be that man crossing the street. As New York State prepares to ramp up its contact tracing efforts, the efforts in Massachusetts are already underway. They've teamed up with the international public health nonprofit Partners in Health, which has previously conducted this work during recent outbreaks of cholera and Ebola. Emily Daly is the organization's director of impact and leads their COVID response team. She's been involved with training a new workforce in Massachusetts for which they're pulling from more than 25,000 applicants. Contact tracers are not providing clinical information or giving you advice about your clinical care diagnosis. Their role is to call and say, hi, I am a part of the COVID community team. Is this so-and-so? And, you know, I'm calling to let you know that you may have been exposed to COVID in that you were exposed to a person who has a positive diagnosis for COVID. During this time, we give you a date range. And here's what we want you to do. We want you to pay attention to your symptoms, giving you information about your, your different resources. And then that contact tracer also asks for information about their contacts during the relevant period of time. They've got a job to do. They pump you for your contacts, but, you know, that's fine. They don't hassle you at all. Does my family or anybody in my home have to know about this? Because, you know, it would No, they don't. Don't worry about that. There's a, a confidentiality part of the training, which is, you know, how do you make sure that you're keeping confidential all of the different information about the, the people who you're calling, you're conducting the, the calls in, you know, a room without other people, you're not taking any notes, all of those things about um, confidentiality and security. A part of the training also is about empathy, being a good listener, because we're functioning in kind of an emergency period where, where we need to get people up to speed quickly. And despite some of the more troublesome jargon associated with the effort, words like tracing and surveillance, Dally says most people they reach are receptive and even thankful to get the call. 
you know, I called someone and they were so grateful to hear from me. We talked for 45 minutes and, you know, we weren't actually anticipating that length of call per contact, but this person lived alone and, you know, had a lot of questions and, you know, part of this also is, is connecting people to services because we know that people are going to have different experiences. While most people seem to have given themselves over to the advice and impositions deemed necessary by public health professionals, it hasn't been entirely smooth, hasn't happened soon enough, and there's a question whether this willingness will last long enough. Uh, yes, I was surprised, pleasantly surprised, in the sense that I, I didn't expect people to be willing to undergo those sorts of sacrifices without you know, much protest. Peter Baldwin is a professor of history at UCLA and has written two books about public health and the evolution of the modern state. On the other hand, would you say that the Western democracies have acquitted themselves very well in, in these terms? You know, most Americans, especially those on the coast, are willing to put up with the kind of, you know, domestic quarantine that's now been going on for, you know, over a month. You know, we compare ourselves with what went on in Asia. You know, we sort of expect an autocracy like China to be able to sort of clamp down. That doesn't surprise us. Uh, we don't think we'd be able to get away with that in, in democracies. But, you know, Taiwan and um, South Korea, of course, and Singapore, you know, handled this remarkably well, precisely by sort of rolling out the infrastructure that meant that they could quarantine those people who had to be quarantined, namely the ones who were symptomatic, or those who had come into contact with people who were ill, and thereby spare the rest of society the need to isolate themselves. Precisely because we in the West have not been able to do that, we're forced to take this much cruder approach, which is to make basically everybody stay inside. So we did better, I think, than many of us had expected. On the other hand, compared to those countries that were even more efficient, you know, we, we have not done so well. He says moments like these are often litmus tests for governments and societies, and they provoke the age-old questions about how intimate government should be in our affairs. Public health in epidemic times gives you sort of the classic clash between the rights of the individual and the rights of society. And ultimately, I suspect we're going to see even more of it before it's over. I got every problem when the government saying we can't go out. It's a prohibition. And it's illegal. It's against the Constitution. Prolong lockdown, basically a slavery. Open your business, welcome. Open your bookstores, open your restaurants, open your retail shops, open your But most people are willing to sort of forego a lot of their civil liberties protections if the state promises them security in return. And when it comes to questions about sharing information of who carries the virus, he thinks we may see a certain cultural shift. I imagine we're going to have a long debate about running these apps on our phones that someday will testify to our epidemiological status and allow us to go out, allow us to go to restaurants and live normal lives or, you know, confine us to our homes if we're not yet blessed with immunity. So, my guess would be that we're probably going to be willing to give up a lot of privacy in order to regain control and normalcy in the rest of our lives. But normalcy won't return until we're able to implement some of these public health measures. And experts say New York City is not quite ready for contact tracing. After you get a certain density of people who are diseased, it no longer matters because a disease is just sort of spreading. I mean, that's, I think, what nowadays is referred to as community spread. But in the beginning, obviously, when you know, patient zero arrives in airport X, and then takes the taxi to Hotel Y and says hello to the bellboy. And, you know, then you sort of are, have a situation where contact tracing actually makes a great deal of sense because you want to find the people who have been infected or potentially affected and isolate them. The problem is you have to know this from the very beginning and you have to act immediately. If, you know, if you let it slide for a week, the game's over and it's spread so widely that there really is no point in doing it anymore. 
the city will have to move out of what's called the mitigation phase and into a containment phase. What we didn't do then, we now have the chance to do. And what we didn't do then was precisely to try to identify those who were infected, figure out whom they had infected and from whom they had gotten the infection, and to isolate those people whom it was necessary to isolate, thereby not having to isolate the mass of the population. So, yes, we will need armies of contact tracers to narrow the group of people who have to be isolated. But the experts say we'll have to flex all of our public health muscles, that without things like testing and an understanding of the capacities we already have, an army alone will not be enough. Here's David Harvey again. This is a moment for public health to shine and to educate people about this core essential function of government. The coronavirus pandemic has shown that we do not invest enough in the nation's public health. The public health system is often a silent, behind-the-scenes system that people take for granted. For now, at least, there's an investment in disease detective jobs. And if you want to join the Army, in Massachusetts anyway, it's paying up to $35 an hour. My name is Narbaya Nalasco, and I'm over here in Hong Kong where I work as a high school teacher in an international school. We've been dealing with the pandemic or the coronavirus outbreak since uh, the end of January. The uh, mainland um, started reporting cases at the end of December, but it wasn't um, more widely known until January where we were noticing numbers growing there and we were beginning to think um, as a country on how we would respond to that or what, how that might impact what was happening here in Hong Kong. Then after Chinese New Year, as I watched news of uh, closures in the mainland in Wuhan and other places, um, we were told by our government that schools would close for two weeks. The um, school closures have continued now. I think we are in the 12th week of school closure. Um, I haven't seen my students for 13 weeks because we had Chinese New Year before that. Um, and it's, it's continued this way. Um, for the first eight weeks, things were pretty uh, settled. We were dealing with the situation as it impacted us more directly. And then when it shifted to become a global pandemic, we noticed an upswing, an uptick of cases here in Hong Kong and tighter restrictions. Country parks, fields, gymnasiums, places like that were closed. They've now since closed bars and pubs um, and they have put into place some social distancing measures. You're only allowed out with four people and a group of four people and uh, social distancing and whatnot. And ideally, we're supposed to maintain um, life lifestyle that is very... Um, you know, go out as you need to, but not um, for, you know, socializing and things. So that's where we are now. And we have since watched uh, numbers in Hong Kong dwindle again as they've closed borders. Um, and we remain 
working from home uh, and teaching from home. Um, the the change has been um, now you know it was it was kind of drastic at first. Um, took a while to get used to. My husband and I are both teachers. We have three children, so that's five of us in one home, um, learning from home, teaching from home, and so. Uh, one of the biggest adjustments we had to make was really in setting a schedule and routine for our children to uh, make sure that home was separate from school um, and also to manage uh, space. There's five of us needing access to the internet and needing to learn, um, and Hong Kong isn't known for um, its large apartments. We are very lucky to have a lot of space. Um, but that's kind of been the, the biggest change is, is being around each other all the time, um, especially since social distancing measures have tightened. We have less flexibility to go out than we did in the first eight weeks. Um, living on campus, it's uh, really impacted our community because um, there's no one here. It's very quiet, and um, I think that's the weirdest thing, although I, I have to secretly admit that I enjoy a bit of the peace. Um, we live right near a country park, um, and I see um, the beauty of nature around me all the time, and it is beautiful because there is less pollution, less people, um, and just a resurgence of the natural elements, um, birds and other animals that we see around. So that's been nice, and just also the, the peace, not just a, the busyness of school, but the quietness. So that's that's been um, an interesting impact on our community. And living around colleagues from different divisions in our school means that my family or my children still have playmates. And so we've also had to put into place some measures to keep them safe because we're fairly sheltered here. So we are not as impacted as if we were living in another country where you know, they've had to cut off total social connection. But we did have to make sure that um, the parents in our community were all on the same page in terms of our actions and how they might impact um, the children in our neighborhood to keep them safe. So, yeah, that's that's where we are with um, COVID-19 in Hong Kong. Oh, God, it's happening. Yeah, you guys hearing the thunder? It's really happening. I heard something. I hear, I hear you. Thunder rolls going on over here. Ooh. It looks crazy over the sea right now. Oh, I bet. Oh, yeah. Are the waves That's like going nuts? Amazing. Not quite, but you can see them picking up though. Wow. Oh, my God. It's a good day to work from home. Yeah. Hi, Brooklyn, USA. Hi, my break people. I miss you. It's Hui. I'm sending you this from Brookfield, Connecticut. I would like to share some stories about my son, Jeffrey, since I'm home with him 24-7 now. 
And um, he just turned two and starts to get very silly and funny. So um, we have a we have a baby turtle, a tortoise, and we made him a fence house in the yard so he can get some sunlight during the day. Um, so on a beautiful sunny day, I told my son to put the tortoise outside, and I saw him drop the tortoise and came back inside. Um, a few a few hours later, I went to check on the tortoise, and it's gone. He's nowhere to be found, and I freak out, and the whole family, um, the whole family just went out searching for the tortoise. It's really like a seek and find book, you know, because the colors are so well blended together with the grass. Uh, anyway, we found it, and later I asked my son where he put the tortoise. He tried to explain with his little words that um, he put the tortoise outside the fence because there's a spider inside. He said the spider will eat the tortoise, so he put him outside. So it's you know, he's worried about the tortoise. And um, another story. He he really loves animals, and I have a cat that I have for fifteen years. And he recently passed away,、um, and it's hard to explain to my to my son because he's only two where the cat went. So I told him he got sick and he went to heaven. He went, you know, up to the sky to heaven. And now whenever he sees something about cats, he hears something about cats, he'll point to the sky and he'll say, "Cat, up, no more, up, no, no, no more." Um, it sounds like a sad story, but it's really funny when you see him saying it. He just repeats it like all,、um, all the time, and he's really a love and、um, sweet boy. But I'm pretty sure he has OCD, just like his dad. He wants everything to be organized. He pays a lot attention to details, such as he has the.、Um, Such as a black spot on his left hand, he have a tiny black mole, I think, on his black hand, and he would just always compare his two hands, back and forth, back and forth, and won't get over with it. Until one day, I drew another black dot on the other hand, and now we needed to draw a dot every day, so he won't he won't compare it every anymore. Well, that's it. Uh, I hope you enjoy the stories, and I know it's a hard time staying at home, but I hope we're all enjoy this time with our families, or friends,、um, or our pets.、Um, I hope it's a time for us to, you know, create some good memories with our families. So, you know, who knows if we have this this much time in the future, you know. But I hope we'll get through this quickly, so we can our life can be back to normal. You know, stay safe. Love you all. We can weather with Griffin. We can weather with Griffin. Hey everyone, it's Junior Meteorologist Griff City talking about the weekend weather. Your city. Brooklyn, USA. Friday, high 51, low 42. It will be rainy. Saturday, high 55, low 46. It will be partly cloudy.
Sunday, high 51, low 44. It will be rainy. Weekly fun fact. Did you know that the first Earth Day was on April 22, 1970? The same year that the Environmental Protection Agency was created. Thanks for listening, Brooklyn. Have a great week. Bye. Brooklyn USA is produced by me, Sasha Mathias. And me, Emily Bogosian. And me, Shirin Barry. And me, Charlie Hoxie. And me, Carol Palmer. And me, Ross Tuttle. And me, Mayimi Sato. With help this week from Brick Radio Junior Meteorologist Griff City, Lauren Germain, Taylor Cook, and Raihan Faruqi. If you want to send us a message, check the show notes for a link to our handy guide on how to do just that. And if you'd rather reach out the old-fashioned way, you can call us at 917-719-0021 and tell us your name, where you're calling from, how to reach you, and anything else you want to get off your chest. We're here when you need us, and we can't wait to hear from you. If you like what you hear, comment, like, share, and subscribe, and follow at BrickTV on Twitter and Instagram for updates. And while you're there, follow at BrickBrooklyn for updates on all the arts, music, and cultural programming that we're beaming right into your living room. And if you want to brush up on your beaming skills, check the show notes for a link to Brick's online media education portal. For more information on this and all Brick Radio podcasts, visit brickartsmedia.org slash radio. Do we want to put out an episode tomorrow? I really don't, personally, because I'm in a bad mood today.